As the token pastor in my friend group and within my family, I'm asked to do the religious things people think they should do at large group gatherings. In the eyes of my family and friends, my ordination and two seminary degrees make me qualified to say the blessing before family meals, especially at Thanksgiving and Christmas, provide commentary on the latest Christian malarkey going on in the A section of the Washington Post, and to officiate funerals and weddings. Because we're at the tail end of the wedding season, I am officiating two weddings over the coming three weeks. One for a couple that I've known since I began my ministry in Arlington, and the second for the son of a fraternity brother. Weddings are simply part of my gig as a pastor. And like a typical Arlington overachiever, I will be the best wedding officiant a couple will ever know. We will meet no less than three times before the wedding to prepare. Premarital counseling, worship planning, because after all, a wedding is an act of worship, and to finalize any last-minute logistics. The last-minute logistics always include confirming the location of the wedding venue. That's an important detail. The date and time of the service, another important detail. The number of people in the wedding party. Who will have the rings before the service begins? Which family members the couple wants me to run interference on? Which crazy aunt might get handsy when she's hugging folks after the service? And if I'm invited to the reception that's a little bit selfish of me because I just want to make sure I'm not stuck at the boring table. The last thing I ask the couple is, what would they like me to wear for the service? Now, I don't care one way or another. A suit, a suit with a stole, a robe and a stole, a tuxedo, or whatever else the couple asks me to wear. I just don't want to show up wearing the wrong attire. Jesus told the chief priests and the elders of the temple another parable. This is the third parable in Jesus' response to their questions about his authority. Who are you to do what you've been doing, they asked. You have the audacity to come into our temple and shake things up. Just who do you think you are? A king was throwing the most spectacular wedding reception for his son. No expense was spared. There was a prime rib station, more seafood towers than anyone could ever eat. The invite list included the who's who of the country club. There was a VIP entrance at the banquet hall for those who could not use the front door like the other buddies of the king. But the king's buddies and the VIP saw the invitation and never showed up. They either didn't want to attend or they had better things to do. No problem, says the king. The king sends his fixer out with a new set of invitations. The food and drinks have already been paid for, after all. The king says, go and find some new guests. Check the halfway house. Go behind 7-Eleven. Heck, even go outside the beltway if you have to. Come one, come all. Sounds like a great party, right? I bet you loved this parable up to that point. We love it when Jesus gets all Jesus-y. It makes clear that all are welcome. Come one, come all is the invitation we hear every time we gather around Christ's table, breaking bread and sharing the cup. After the king had the first round of guests off like they were in an episode of The Sopranos, 
The second round of guests began showing up to the party. They walked the red carpet, and as they entered the banquet hall, the king's valet offered them new clothing to put on. Top-of-the-line stuff. Type of stuff you buy at Tyson's, too. After all, there is a dress code for this party. It's not just any black tie affair. As the party was going on, one of the guests caught the catches the eye of the king. You see, after he walked the red carpet, after his, his eyes adjusted to the bright lights of the cameras flashing, this guy declined the attendant's invitation to change his attire. This guy simply refused to change his clothes. There was no expense spared. The prime room station, the seafood towers, an open bar, and the finest clothing in the world, and a free ticket were not enough to convince this guy to put on a jacket. He refused to change. And for his refusal to change, the man was cast out into the darkness. And somehow, Jesus says again, the kingdom of heaven is wrapped up in this mess. I know I became uncomfortable when this parable hits verse 13. And by the way, you all were squirming in the pews. I could tell you were uncomfortable as well. We can stomach the king's buddies and VIPs being offed. And we loved hearing that everyone were invited to the party. Why couldn't Jesus just leave the parable there? A king threw a huge party. The original guests couldn't bother to come, come, so the king invited the outcast and those his buddies would never dream of spending time with. As the new guests arrived, they were given new clothing. They partied like rock stars. Such is the kingdom of heaven. The end. I would love that parable. I know you would love that parable. I've said it a few times over the past week, weeks. When reading Jesus' parables, we must remember that the parables serve as a window through which we can see the world apart from ourselves. The parable of the wedding banquet is a parable through which we get a glimpse of the kingdom of heaven. And when we look closely enough, in the light of God's grace catches the edge of the window, we will see ourselves in this parable. Aside from the couple being married, the cast at a wedding varies from wedding to wedding. There are usually parents, friends, photographers, maybe a caterer, an officiant, more likely than not, a DJ, family, extended family, the wedding party, valets, wedding crashers, and more. Each has a unique relationship to the couple and role at the wedding. Some are service providers there to collect a check and a few tips. Others are there to celebrate the joining of the couple and their families. There are friends from college who will be more excited about the open bar than they are the actual wedding. And then there will be guests who underdress for the occasion or overdress. The parables Jesus told do not have morals attached to them. Jesus never finishes one of his parables saying, Now the moral of the story is, If there were a moral to this or any other parable told by Jesus, the subject of the parable would change. Jesus began his parables by saying, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, the grace of God is like, like a Samaritan, like a lost sheep, like a lost coin, like two sons, like a vineyard owner. If we are looking through a window and are only catching a glimpse of ourselves, then these parables are not about us. No matter how hard we try, no matter the theological backflips we are willing to do, we are not the subject of the parables. 
If we have ever read one of Jesus's parables and find ourselves as the heroes of the story, we best reconsider what Jesus said. No, the parables are about God. That's why in this parable, the only person who speaks is the king. Listen, even the guy confronted in verse 12 for not wearing a robe has no line in this parable. The king said to him, friend, how did you get in without a wedding robe? And he was speechless. The kingdom of heaven is like a king giving his son a wedding banquet. The kingdom of heaven is like God who throws a party for the son. We, the baptized, Christ's body, Christ's bride, the church, are not mentioned by name in this parable. We are so convinced that we need to work out our salvation, that we turn grace into law and place ourselves in the parable when we are not yet there. The priests and the elders of the temple wanted to know who Jesus was. They wanted to know what his relationship was with God. Jesus is telling them about himself, not us. So where are we then? We are not yet in this parable. We are waiting. We're waiting in the Barnett room. We are waiting in the parlor. We are with our overbearing, soon-to-be mother-in-law, our friends from college, and our family preparing for the wedding. In reality, this parable of judgment is a parable of grace because it is not a story about getting your stuff together and sitting down at a banquet table wearing your best. Instead, this is a parable about the lengths to which God will have every last detail of the wedding banquet perfect, nothing out of place, the silver polished, and every guest in their place to celebrate the marriage of the Son. To you, to us, Jesus assumes we already know this because he's already said it. You see, Jesus assured his disciples that there is a place prepared for us. He uses the same language in this parable to ensure that a banquet is prepared. The end of the book of Revelation makes clear, as clear as Revelation can be, that at the end, the marriage supper of the Lamb has been made already. Christ will return coming back to the church that is prepared. Prepared as a bride awaiting the bridegroom. Prepared as two people who are prepared to be united as one. So here's some good news for you. You are not any of the people you thought you were in this parable. You're not the king who throws caution to the wind and spares no expense. You're not the one too busy to find time to attend the party, and you are not the guy who refused to change his clothing. You may think you are any number of characters in this parable throughout your life. The world will tell you that you must do this or that to be worthy. But, and because it's a big but, you know that it doesn't lie. Because of your baptism, because you have been clothed in Christ's righteousness, you are already correct clothing. You are free to do the things that Jesus did and lay aside your worry about the little things that you feel that you do or the things that you leave undone aside. And there lies the heart of the king's invitation. In the kingdom of heaven, we lay aside through repentance and baptism our efforts 
at righteousness and put on the righteousness of Christ. For better or worse, in sickness and in health, you are Christ's. Let what God has joined together, let no one tear asunder. Amen.